Zocalo Radio, the on-air home of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Tonight, home prices are ridiculously out of reach for most Angelinos. Statistics confirm this region as the least affordable housing market in the country. Recently, Socalo convened a panel of experts to examine the problem. Sean Spear, director of major projects for the Los Angeles Housing Department, John Caraval, a housing market analyst with Data Quick Information Systems, and Ehud Mushli, vice president of Unidev, a workforce housing developer, sit down with moderator Rick Wartzman, director of the Drucker Institute. Besides looking at the facts and figures of home ownership and affordability, they tease out problems specific to gateway areas like Los Angeles, renting versus buying, what defines a healthy community, and, finally, explore innovative approaches to housing. Recorded before a live audience at the Nate Holden Performing Arts Center as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, here is Rick Wartzman. Thanks very much. I'm, I'm grateful and thank you all for, for coming out. I told these guys, I realized that as I left the house tonight, my wife kind of looked at me that I was wearing f kind of a funereal color shirt, and, um, but I realized how appropriate, I guess, it is for the, for the topic at hand. Not a lot of great news out there. The, the latest housing numbers uh, that were reported for the month of March show that prices were off by 18.5% year over year in Los Angeles, with the median price being paid for a home down to $440,000 from $540,000. Obviously, there's a lot of hand-wringing among homeowners over this steep decline, but I think in many ways that it really masks a harsher reality, and that is that even at this level, home prices still remain unaffordable and out of reach for so many Angelinos. In that regard, the most recent figures from the National Association of Home Builders and Wells Fargo show that only about 6% of new and existing homes that were sold in the L.A., Long Beach Glendale area late last year were considered affordable to those earning the median family income of about $62,000. This makes the region the least affordable housing market in the country. This is an ignominious status that uh, we've held here now for 13 consecutive quarters by this measure. Meantime, as we know, the subprime loan crisis and the mortgage industry meltdown have brought their own complications. Uh, during the first quarter of the year, the number of California homes that sank into foreclosure rose to its highest level in more than 15 years. In L.A., there were more than 20,000 notices of default compared with fewer than 9,000 in the first three months of 2007. That's a 130% increase. So here to talk about all this fun stuff are uh, three distinguished real estate industry veterans, and I'm happy to introduce them now. To my right is John Caraval, a uh, real estate analyst. John began his career with TRW Real Estate Information Services and then went off on his own about 19 years ago as an independent analyst doing work for several database companies, including DataQuick Information Systems, um, and that is his main gig today. Um, DataQuick collects and analyzes real estate information from public records, and what that means in practical terms is that John gets up most days about 5.30 a.m. and starts downloading and processing raw data dumps and uh, updating statistics on prices, sales volume, mortgage patterns, and foreclosure activity, and other things. He considers himself more of a scorekeeper of where the market is rather than a forecaster about where it's headed, but we'll see if we can coax some forecasts out of him anyway. He told me that he's sometimes accused of being a shill for the industry and other times accused of being a flaming left-winger. I assured him we'd get to the bottom of that tonight as well. Seriously, I, I, you know... Being kicked by both sides, uh, I think, means that he's doing his job as a, as a clear-eyed reporter of the facts. So it's always good to be pummeled from, from both ends. To my far left is uh, Ehud Mushli, who is Vice President and General Manager of Unidev LLC's West Coast office. Unidev is a national leader in the design, development, financing, and management of workforce housing communities. Ehud has been in the real estate business for more than 30 years with a background in master plan communities, mixed-use development projects, and public-private ventures throughout California. He served in leadership positions in the Urban Land Institute for many years, is a member of the National Association of Home Builders and several other key industry groups, 
and is an adjunct professor in the Master of Real Estate Development program at USC. And then sitting next to me to my immediate left is Sean Spear, who is director of major projects for the City of Los Angeles Housing Department. In that role, Sean oversees the operation of five rental housing production-related units, including the Affordable Housing Trust Fund. He also serves as the Housing Department's point person on public-private lending partnerships. Prior to joining the LAHD, Sean was a community development manager with Fannie Mae's Housing and Community Development Unit based in Pasadena. Before his stint there at Fannie Mae, he worked at the San Francisco Redevelopment Agency and the San Francisco Housing Authority, and he was just regaling us with some great Willie Brown stories, so maybe he'll share those, and the New York City Department of Planning. So anyway, welcome to all of you. I'm really glad that uh, you're here tonight with us. Before we focus on affordable housing per se, I want to kick this off just by asking you a little bit about what each of you is seeing on the ground now in terms of where the Los Angeles real estate market is generally and, despite what you told me, where it's heading. Do you anticipate that prices are going to keep coming down much more? Is this contagion of foreclosures likely to spread? What, what's actually going on out there right now? John, why don't we start with you and we'll then just work our way down. Sure. The number of homes being sold and purchased right now is the lowest we have ever seen. If we adjust for the housing stock here, it's probably the lowest since at least the mid-60s there, which means that we have an awful lot of activity out there that's just not happening. People are holding off. If the economy were in worse shape than it is right now, people wouldn't be able to hold off the way they are. You mentioned that prices had gone down 18.5% there. That is the uh, decline in the median price paid for a home. What we've had the past half year is a really significant shift in mix so that the homes towards the lower end of the spectrum here are turning over a bit at a bit faster rate than the homes at the higher end of the spectrum, which is bringing down that median probably by about twice as much as it actually is coming down by. We're thinking now that we're maybe just barely into the double-digit price declines. Price declines are more pronounced at the lower end of the market than they are at the high end of the market. It's basically the richer a household is, the more that household can just hold off on selling the home, they're going to wait for the prices they want. This wouldn't happen if the economy were really bad. This didn't happen in the mid-90s. So uh, what we're seeing right now is a market that's sort of in a, a state, it's in a holding pattern right now. We're seeing signs just now that things are coming back on track, that pr prices are, have stopped going down a bit, and that the uh, sales counts are not nearly as low as they have been the past half year. So from the just, just a, an overview. Sean, what are you saying? Yeah, I'd sort of say that from our perspective, much of what we saw in the market, and basically the bankers, banking institutions sort of say that August was kind of the tipping point in the markets in terms of the drop in, in credit availability that they had. And that sort of translated to, in our first-time homebuyer programs, seeing the situation where we had buyers, potential you know, folks that we were providing down payment assistance to, that suddenly were able to be able to secure homes on their first bids. So it was a great thing in some respects for, for the low and moderate income buyers because they were previously getting priced out of neighborhoods and getting priced out of being able to purchase. So for those that had already sort of secured their initial pre-approval, they were in fact having greater buying power and being able to afford neighborhoods that they hadn't previously. So, so that was a silver lining and then unfortunately though I think it was it was relatively short-lived because then what we started to see was that the credit crunch then started to translate to buyers who you know uh, had other in other circumstances and in previous times based upon their profile would have easily qualified for a mortgage that they were suddenly getting denied mortgages. And, you know, for us it was a little bit hard to understand initially and that sort of occurred in the late summer and into the fall. But I think what that sort of signaled to us that there was sort of a real shift in terms of where the markets were going. I would say that right now what uh, folks are, are encountering is that, unfortunately, it's, it's harder for them to come by the assistance that they need in order to be able to qualify for the mortgages. Uh, in part, what the lenders are telling us is that their concern in underwriting the deals is that they don't know where the bottom is. And so, therefore, they're trying to figure out what the true value of a home is, knowing full well that it's probably going to continue to decrease in value.
value after that. So it makes them very nervous about making new mortgage commitments to folks. And unfortunately, you know, while we're really hoping that that'll change shortly, it still seems to be the picture right now. Nehuda, about you, are any projects impacted by all this uh, turmoil out there? Fortunately for us, our projects are not impacted because we're producing housing that are geared to the level of income that people can afford. And the old rule of thumb always works. You take income times four, that should be the price of the house. I, I mean, just rule of thumb, very simplistic, and, but it works, as long as mortgages are in single digits. But back to the reasons of what's going on, I think we have seen this movie before because builders and developers are addicted to capital. It's like the good stuff. And uh, people behave ir irrationally when money is thrown at them, whether they are buyers who are using liars' loans or builders who get all kinds of money easily. And we have overproduced against the actual demand. And what you are seeing now, all this overhang, is a result of producing way ahead into the future against demand that is not there. It's true that we have to produce minimum number of units. We have produced way ahead of time. It has to be absorbed. The problem is with the pricing right now is that the good news is for affordability, prices have been dropping. But in order to meet my old rule of thumb of multiplier of four, and if the median is in the $60,000 range, the housing has to be priced at mid-200s. That means that prices have to drop down further, 50%, from where they are today. It won't happen. So the affordability problem remains, it will remain, and we have to do something about it. What does, what does affordable mean? What is, is it a number, is it a number combined with certain financing? How do you define affordable? Because we're going to talk tonight about affordable housing. What, what is it? If the rules that we are using to qualify people now still hold, that means that people should apply 30 to 35 percent of their monthly income towards housing. Gross. Yeah. Gross. Gross. Yeah. Now, that compares to uh, Europe, where it's 50 percent or elsewhere, which is much higher. But this is our environment. This is our economy. And that's where the four multiplier comes from, basically. You're listening to a panel on home affordability in Los Angeles. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. For information or to listen to past broadcasts, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. We'll return in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. Programming supported by the State of California. Issuing $1.5 billion in bonds secured by the full faith and credit of the state of California. More information about these bonds at buycaliforniabonds.com. They call it shared parenting, but how often does he get the fun stuff like playtime and bath time and she still gets the laundry and cooking? We'll hear about parents who truly do a 50-50 split in the chores and how it's working. I'm Pat Morrison, and Iowa's levees melted like sugar in the floodwaters. Is that the future for California's levees, which, if they break, could flood hundreds of thousands out of their homes? Find out here Monday, beginning at 1 p.m. Weekdays on 89.3 KPCC. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Good morning. I'm Steve Inskeep. From the studios of NPR West, this is Day to Day. I'm Alex Cohen. I'm Madeline Brand. Coming up, practicing. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Robert Siegel. This is Talk of the Nation. I'm Neil Conan in Washington. Morning Edition, Day to Day. All Things Considered. Talk of the Nation. More NPR News than anywhere else on 89.3 KPCC. You can now get KPCC and NPR News on your cell phone or PDA. Go to kpcc.org where you'll find information on NPR Mobile from KPCC. Oh, and we're also still here at 89.3. A common misconception about public radio is that it's paid for with government money. In fact, government funding is only a small part of KPCC's total budget. Most of the money it takes to run KPCC comes from individual listeners who become contributing members. Every single member makes a difference. 
So contribute today at kpcc.org. And thanks. Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Now, it's back to our panel on home affordability in Los Angeles, with Sean Spear, Director of Major Projects for the Los Angeles Housing Department, John Caraval, a housing market analyst with DataQuick Information Systems, and Ehud Mushli, Vice President of UNIDEV, a workforce housing developer, and moderator Rick Wartsman. The rule of thumb, quickly, if you earn 60, go look for a house that's 240. Now, in Los Angeles, it's a dream. But you go to Atlanta and Indianapolis, it's doable. So it, it is a market-specific issue. Sean, is that a yeah. good rule of thumb? Yeah, and actually it is. And, and it's, it's in part what we use um, when we evaluate the buying power of folks that are looking to purchase homes and get our assistance. I think the other factor is just that with where the affordability is, is that it really sort of prevents folks that otherwise would easily have the opportunity and get easily underwritten in other parts of the country, but unfortunately they, they just literally can get, can get pre-qualified and then not be able to find something. So as Hood as mentions, the, the affordability gap is, is tremendous and, and continues to be here, and that really sort of contributes to the lack of movement, I think, that you see in the, in, in the inventory in L.A., in part because there's just so few, many, few people that can actually afford the, what's out there. The, the, the one, one thing is that we have to remember that this really applies to first-time buyers who don't have family assistance from the aunts and the uncles and the parents. This is strictly trying to work your economics on your own. Yeah, and I'm sorry, and just to add yeah. to that, that, in part what we sort of realized um, a couple of years back was that we had to adjust our programs to really try and get people the best opportunity, that even folks that were at 100% of the area median income for Los Angeles and higher were still having just as hard a problem in trying to find homes. So we expanded our programs actually to not only serve low-income buyers, but people up to 150% of AMI which is the highest, as far as we know, in the state, if not in the country. We recognize that those folks um, that have very so that's good... That's about 90000 uh, 111000 111000 so right. For a family of four. So that's a $400,000 Now you're getting house. to the median price. But you're getting, right. and you're getting closer to where it is. But, yeah. right. Okay. Exactly. And it's interesting, and, and you know, everyone's definition is a little different. I know that National Association of Home Builders, they use 28%, so a little, a little lower. As, and they say that's a lot of lending. This is California. We have to be different. Yeah, yeah there we you have go. to be very aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. John, anything you want to add on a well, definition uh, of affordability? I, I think one thing we have to keep in mind here is that Los Angeles is a bit different than most of the rest of the country. It's a so-called gateway area, uh, along with uh, several other cities, such as Chicago, Miami there. The uh, regular pipeline that applies in home ownership in the rest of the country doesn't apply to Los Angeles because so many people are coming to Los Angeles as a sort of a first step in their trajectory there. They're just out of college. They're out there looking for work. They're out there just willing to live in a scrawny fashion. Uh, maybe they've just uh, moved to the country there. It's known for a very high rate of turnover. People generate households faster in the greater Los Angeles area than they do in the rest of the country. They get divorced faster. They marry faster. They have kids. All of, all of this is quite a bit different. And we're never going to have numbers in affordability that we're going to be able to compare with, say, Georgia or Indiana or something like that. It's always going to be different here. People that are sort of in that mid-range of their life there, they tend to move away from Los Angeles. Very often they'll come back if they're wealthy. So we have a very lopsided demographic and a very lopsided pipeline to the home ownership here. Another thing, too, when it comes to the um, percent of income, this is varied all over the place there. For example, the Bay Area has always had about a 10% higher 
debt to income ratio when it comes to housing compared to the rest of the state here. In the Bay Area, even back when, uh, when it was very low here in Southern California, it was uh, 44, 45, 46 percent there. I know I spend part of the year in, in Europe. We certainly over there have a 50 percent rate of uh, housing cost to, to income there. All of this varies really quite a bit depending upon what, uh, what sort of demographic you've got, how f- much money people are making. All of these things do change. I, when it comes to the subprime issue here, there are a whole whole array of issues at play here. In qualifying, if we go back 30 years, I, I and I, when I first heard this, it kind of blew me away. If we go back 30 years, the big issue back then that was even more controversial back then than subprime lending is now, or the so-called subprime lending is now, was the fact that they started qualifying households based on spousal income. Up till then, if you were the guy, they, they used your income, they did not look at your wife's income, and that was it. So, so the, as the industry has had access to more and more information, they've been able to expand the uh, underwriting criteria. They certainly went overboard here two years ago. They're now calling it loans gone wild in the industry. <laughs> It went way, way overboard. But that's, that's what you have when everybody in the decision-making hierarchy there is living on commission. You know, you have everybody from the uh, loan originator, the uh, loan broker down there, the lending institution, the people that own the lending institution, the people that are packaging the loans and selling them on to the investors. Everybody along that line there is making a living based on how much money moves from point A to point B, you know, and, and, and you had a, a complete failure in legislation out of Washington there. You got people that say, nope, we don't want to, you know, have any influence over this. Let the free market decide what the free market will decide. So, so you have a whole array of issues here that are at play here, which is, you know, playing itself out here in Los Angeles in many, many different ways, affordability being one of them. You are a flaming left-winger. See that? <laughs> so, um, and it's interesting. You mentioned you know, the, the taking on a spousal income. It reminds me of, of some of the things that are going on now with lenders who specialize in the Latino community, and particularly the immigrant community, and trying to look at different measures of household income that aren't traditional measures because a lot of these folks could qualify you know, maybe having multiple jobs isn't shouldn't be a negative on your record. It should be a good thing, or or you know whatever it is. So there's a lot of different ways I know to, to look at that. I, I think, I, although you bear me out, that there is a cash economy in action here, and I'm sure that plays somewhere. Well, no, and I, I think quantified. No, and I think that that was part of the criteria that you know the lenders started to look at. They started to say, okay, well, what's your self-reported income? Right. You know, and acknowledging, okay, well, maybe not, not all of your income ends up on your tax return, so just tell us what you really actually make, and we'll trust you on that. Right. You know. Although going to the, what, the ninja loan, the no job, you know, no, <laughs> no income loan, that's not a no right, income, yeah. no job, yeah, not necessarily a, a good far. thing. Yeah. You know, all this said, however you define affordable and however you judge what is income, you know, the fact remains that L.A. has one of the nation's lowest home ownership rates. And... You know, I've seen, I've seen numbers only New York is worse in this respect. So how have we gotten here? I mean, it, how, have, how have we gotten here? You know, is this mainly a demographic phenomenon of market fundamentals being driven by demographics, supply and demand? Is this a failure of public policy? Is it a combination? What, what's put us here? Do I understand you to say that you think it's bad? that the home ownership is lower in California, in Southern California? Interesting point. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's, yeah. that's embedded in the that's question, but that's a great point. No, I, so I, so I, argue the other side. I, I, don't, I don't have a direct answer, because I think uh, now I'm going to be on the right. Rent, <laughs> con- rent control is bad. <laughs> so, and that is a major contributor to the phenomenon that we have a high degree of rental more than elsewhere. Rent control is a contributor to that. There is no question about it. And it interferes with the free market economics. And the supply and demand is skewed as a result of that. Now you get involved with subsidized housing of some kind. Mm-hmm. All kinds of little mechanisms that are at play that interfere with the market. Although, I'm coming back to my first point, I'm not sure that it's a bad thing. It, what really you have to address are what people want. And if you're not able to address that, then it's a problem. I don't, I don't have a direct answer. I'm just I'm putting it as a question for, for you to, to, to think about. 
Sean, what do you see? Well, you I, yeah. see people who want to own houses, but sure. can't. Yeah. Lots no, of and I think they can't. But, I mean, I think some of it is, is that it's, it's part of the, the fabric of an urban community that there is sort of a healthy amount of rental alongside homeownership opportunities. But, and, you know, I think to some respects you have to look at it as, particularly when we talk about rent, rent control, there's, there's has to be the acknowledgement that in a denser community, you know, you're more often going to have a little bit more rental and, you know, that that's in part sort of the, the ebb and flow of a community, and particularly, as you mentioned earlier, a gateway community in which people are regularly moving in and moving out. So, you know, when you have those factors, you, you want to, through rent control, provide some opportunities for people to have a stable sense of their housing, that in, if they're in a rental, to be able to know what and, and expect what their rent increase is going to be, and, and to a certain extent, protect them from the vagaries of the market. And I think that that's a good public policy to have. I think it contributes to the same type of stability that you want in communities as, as yeah. people typically associate with home ownership. Yeah. There is definite uh, a premium on uh, stability in a community when you have ownership over rental. We all take it for granted, and I think for good reason. What, what the issues are is that it's kind of part of the ethos, I guess, the social phenomenon. You're using it to build your asset base. You, that's how you use home ownership. Although I must say that in our particular case, when we are, the housing we build, when you leave, you cannot sell in the open market. You have to sell back to the entity that sold it to you, and the price is capped, and therefore the great speculation element is no longer there. We still have people coming in because it's, they get ownership housing. But, Sean, I want to understand from the, from the city housing department's point of view, is there a good amount of rental home ownership balance, or is it out of balance in L.A.? It's certainly out of balance, but I think in part it's out of balance because the apartment creation market dried up several years ago. And in, certain, in a certain respect, this, this situation that we're going through right now is a benefit to the city because you have developers that were initially looking at developing condo developments that are now converting theirs to rental. In part, it's a placeholder because yeah. they were realizing that they weren't going to be able to sell all their condo units, but the, the rental market continues to be strong. So they're just following where the market's going. But I think that in the long run, you know, you want to have a healthy base of home ownership within every city. But at the same time, you want to make sure that you're providing and creating enough rental housing that it serves that need, too. And for a city like this, where there is a lot of movement, I think, you know, you really have to have a robust rental uh, development market, which we haven't seen for a couple of years. John, what did you want to? Well, he didn't put it in there. I, I lived in Norway from I was when I was 12 till I was 33, so I have a different perspective from a different angle there for for a while there. The the uh, home ownership issue here uh, has largely been defined by a lot of very very good lobbyists that we have in Washington: the National Association of Realtors, the National Association of Home Builders, uh, the Mortgage Bankers Association, who have been drumming in this home ownership thing. And I I, I do agree that home ownership is absolutely appropriate for for a lot of people during a lot of their life, but it's not always appropriate for everybody at any given time, and there are limits. You know, we keep pushing this uh, home ownership rate up to maybe, you know, 58, 59, 60%. At the same time, though, there are people that just are not candidates for home ownership, whether they're just too old or they mess up their lives or they're too young or their finances aren't in order or they're in some sort of a transition. I'm not sure that pushing home ownership up from you know a 57% rate to say a 60% rate is necessarily a good thing. I think that we should concentrate on housing as the issue more than home ownership, and give people uh, the opportunity to have meaningful housing that is in balance with you know what they need at that point in their lives. There, I think that would be the more important issue here. The, the fact that you've had these lobbies out there making it actually financially advantageous. Now, I know you're saying that there's a stake in home ownership here, but, but the fact is that you know, there's a, a huge write-off at tax time for, for those who own homes and have it financed because of the uh, mortgage interest that they're paying on the property there. Uh, the law got changed here about uh, 10 years ago so that people could walk away with the uh, gain that they made on selling a home. It used to be that they could do that once per lifetime, basically. Now they can do it over and over and over again. 
that's not tax on the capital gains. Now, these are tax advantages that there is no real counterpart for among those who are not homeowners. And these are the people that are largely, or in, in very often, are the ones who are least able to afford it there. So I do think it's very unfair that there are these built-in advantages to uh, being a homeowner out there. And I, I, I'm not sure that that's a good thing to push that limit in homeownership up as high as it has gone there. I, I think a lot of the discussion should be on housing, not just homeownership. Let, let me ask you, so what's, so Sean, what's the picture like for affordable rental housing? How, what does that picture look like? Well, yeah, and I mean, I think if, if there is any possible silver lining in this, it is sort of that the, the market's become a little bit more conducive to developing, you know, affordable rental in particular. You know, you have sites that, that the condo developers had, you know, initially acquired, and now they're looking to sell them off because they need to liquidate. So in those terms, you know, the affordable housing developers, both for-profit and non-profit, are having a little bit better time acquiring good sites that they can then develop affordable housing on. What's coupled with that is, though, you know, we sort of recognize in the city that there's a tremendous need that we have to meet on the affordable housing side. We don't have enough resources to be able to do it. We're hoping that in some respects, some of these, we take advantage of the situation now that both sellers of land are facing, as well as, frankly, the condo developers and see if there are opportunities for us to increase the amount of affordable housing rental side that we need. You're listening to a panel on home affordability in Los Angeles on SoCalo Radio. This Wednesday, June 25th, Sokolo presents New York Times science writer Carl Zimmer with a talk entitled The Oracle in the Gut, E. coli and the Meaning of Life. In his new book, Microcosm, E. coli and the New Science of Life, Zimmer explores how this microbe, known to most of us for its deadly outbreaks, is actually leading scientists to a new understanding of what it means to be alive. From altruism to death, genetic destiny versus individualism, and the possibility of life beyond our planet, E. coli can answer many of our deepest questions about existence. And on Tuesday, July 8th, it's Baby on Board. When did motherhood become a career and is it a professional disaster? A conversation with Leslie Bennett and Meg Wolitzer, moderated by Megan Down, Los Angeles Times columnist. In a lively and provocative discussion, these two writers, both mothers themselves, will talk about the complications and contradictions of having it all and the role that feminism does or doesn't play in the lives of contemporary women. On Monday, July 14th, Josh Kuhn speaks on the kidnapped country, violence, drugs, and the crisis of Mexican culture. L.A.-based writer and scholar Josh Kuhn visits Socalo to explore the current crisis in Mexico within the broader context of contemporary globalization, drawing on personal, cultural, and political sources, from testimonies of victims to local blog accounts to the drug ballads of popular songs. And on Sunday, July 27th, Sokolo travels to Shanghai with LA versus Shanghai, who is the art capital of the Pacific Rim. Moderated by Shinyun Ma, Dean of the USC School of Architecture. Admission to these and all Sokolo events is free, but reservations are recommended. For more information or to hear past programs and lectures, just click on our website, SokoloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. We'll return to our panel on home affordability in Los Angeles in a moment. Stay tuned to SoCalo Radio. Programming on 89.3 KPCC is supported by Sony Pictures Classics, presenting Brick Lane, a new film by Sarah Gavron based on a novel by Monica Ali about a young woman from India whose arranged marriage takes her to a new life and love in London. Now playing. People you can trust. Peter Kenyon. Sylvia Poggioli. Anthony Kuhn. Lourdes Garcia Navarro. Jason Bobian. Don Gagne. In places that matter. Gaza. Rome. Beijing. Baghdad. Johannesburg. Washington. The right people in the right places. Every day on All Things Considered from NPR News. 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 Weekday afternoon starting at 3.30 on 89.3 KPCC. Weekdays on 89.3 KPCC. This is Talk of the Nation. I'm Neil Cunningham. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Remember the good old days? This is Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Bank of America has announced that it. Good afternoon. I'm Pat Morrison. It's something of an article of faith in business in Southern California that the cost of doing this. More NPR and local news on 89.3 KPCC.
You already know how to get KPCC on your radio and your computer. Now you can get NPR and KPCC news on your cell phone or PDA. Go to kpcc.org to learn about NPR Mobile from KPCC. You can get hourly headlines, news stories, or hear the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me quiz, all whenever it's convenient for you. NPR and KPCC News, on air, online, and now on the phone, too. Thank you. KPCC's recent fundraiser was a big success. Whether measured by members, dollars, or trees, if you missed it, remember that you can join or renew anytime at kpcc.org. Thanks. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the honor home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Now it's back to a panel on home affordability in Los Angeles with Sean Spear, director of major projects for the Los Angeles Housing Department, John Caraval, a housing market analyst with Data Quick Information Systems, and Ehud Mushli, vice president of UNIDEV, a workforce housing developer, and moderator Rick Wartzman. Are there successful models around LA that you can point to that are that are working to create affordable housing and and maybe also around the country? Again, you can talk about your own. That's okay. yeah, yeah. no no problem. And are there models around the country as well that you're looking at um, or that you all know of that might be things that could be replicated here? Maybe I can speak about some principles first. When you do an analysis, a financial analysis of what the components are of the cost of building a unit, you have land, construction, marketing, and financing. Those are the basic building blocks of the cost of building a house. There's little you can do about the construction. It is what it is. Financing also has to be taken care of. So that leaves us three other elements that we can manipulate or play with. Land, marketing, and overhead. The largest piece is the land. What we have been focusing on, and we are not unique in that, uh, but others are doing it, is taking the land, particularly land that's in the public sector hand, rather than selling it to the private interests, you keep it in the public hands. And instead of moving land into private ownership, you keep it in the public sector and you do ground leases. And that is a fair economic return on the land to the landowner you achieve public purpose by reducing the price or the cost of the house and therefore you can drop down the price. And particularly large-scale employers who have large land holdings, whether it's municipal government, universities, school districts, those are the candidates who can take care of their employees. They cannot retain them or attract them, but if you reduce the price of the housing, not only that, you bring them closer in. And I can tell you that maybe three, four years ago, it didn't matter much, but at $4 a gallon, it begins to matter a lot. And, and that's why if you do this kind of transaction where the land gets out of the equation, I think there's a way there to achieve affordability in a big way. Can you talk more specifically about a project you or, or another developer you know of has done in, in this way? And how it actually worked and how many units of housing you created and so on? The company I joined two and a half years ago is called UNIDEV. The first project was 25 years ago for the University of California at Irvine. They already then had the problem of house prices exceeding the ability of faculty and staff to pay. So they carved out, and against the wishes of the regents, it took a big fight. They carved out 200 acres on which we master planned 1,000 units it's called University Hills. It's doing very well. People are buying a unit. They do not get title to the land. When they leave the employment of the university, they cannot sell in the open market. They must sell to someone of their eligibility criterion or back to the entity. The price is fixed at what they paid for plus CPI. So it's not the speculation game. You cannot use it to do the, the leveraging of your equity, but during the tenure, during the ownership, you get uh, property tax deductions, you get mortgage interest reductions, and you live in a unit that you own. And the proof of the matter is 25 years later, a house inside University Hills sells for about 
of the same unit on the outside. That is perpetual affordability. That's good. I'm just curious, what are the houses like, and can you put a dollar figure? So what do they sell compared to... The housing is high-quality housing. Matter of fact, we always insist on retaining brand-name home builders to build those houses. That's why we are able to sometimes, somebody asks, where are the models? We say, go down the street. This is the builder. Here is the... And, and 25 years ago, we used J.M. Peters, the company. I, I wasn't there. The company used J.M. Peters, which was high brand name in Orange County. More recently, our most recent project is Cal State uh, Channel Islands in Camarillo, where Brookfield Homes put a brand name builder, put out the house. And again, the houses are much the same unit. Take it on the outside, it's about 30-40% more in the, in the price that the only pay. But there's a quid pro quo, of course. Yeah, I just wanted to add that uh, actually one of uh, my programs that we manage is uh, deals exactly with that, which is realizing that the city actually has you know land resources across the board, that there are both vacant properties, there's not many, but there are a few that are surplus properties that, that the city owns scattered throughout the city. And then there's also land that's owned by other departments that are you know underutilized relative to the, de- the allowable density in the, in the surrounding community. So we're actually have been putting out requests for proposals to developers on, you know, developing some sites. So we, you know, one of the sites was up uh, near Silmar, which is a home ownership site. So it's 34 units that will be developed there. Another is actually adjacent to uh, the Highland Park Gold Line Station in that neighborhood, which there's a series of DOT, Department of Transportation, lots that they're interested in having that replaced with a garage but having housing above it. So, you know, I think the... Affordable housing and transportation and in transport, one place? Shocking, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, but, you know, I think it really presents really great opportunities to take city assets that, you know, really underutilized and take out the what is oftentimes the biggest cost in development of housing, which is the land, and have that be, you know, as Ehud was mentioning, have that be on a ground lease so the city retains ownership, but it leases it to the developer and the owner who develops the housing there. And are there other other programs, other models out there that either in L.A. or around the country that you like? Yeah, I think, the, you know, there's actually a lot of interest around transit-oriented development, as you mentioned, and so, you know, cities are looking at ways to sort of leverage the resources, typically from their, their transportation departments when, and at times, if they're developing new transportation resources and looking at, you know, the surplus land that they used as staging areas and then no longer need after the fact, and figuring out, you know, how they can end up turning that into a positive use that, for the surrounding community. It's, it's a very interesting if you look, take an aerial of a city such as Los Angeles and you look at the aerial and you identify all of a sudden your vacant parcels. They're used as parking lots. A, a surface parking lot is a waste of land in the urban context. And adaptive reuse is a technical word, is really lets you take such sites, put parking on top of it, a parking structure, and on top of that you can put residential uses. And it's, it's, it's happening more and more, and I think it's the way to go in a tight urban environment. So some of this is just creating more supply and then doing some things to affect the, the cost of supply, which in turn affects the price. How much more supply, though, do we need to begin to change the equation and get to some of the numbers where the median income here matches up to the median housing price? Uh-huh. Well, if we're talking about Los Angeles, the equation is just too odd because of the demographic picture that we have here. If we were to talk about, say, Southern California as a whole, there's no way we're ever going to bring it into line with the rest of the country there. It's just a question of are we going to be 50% more costly per you know, unit uh, relative to income or are we going to be twice as costly per unit relative to income? And we've been at both points during the past 15 years there probably you know, all things considered, there were problem. you know, I think a, a level, a natural level for California, which is an attractive place to live, is probably about 50 to 60 percent uh, that the cost of housing, that people just pay that much more than they do elsewhere. That seems to be roughly there. You know, there are debates both regarding California, the coasts, 
Thank you know, uh, uh, versus inland there. That's that's the big uh, the big thing now. We all thought here that the middle part of the country was going to rise uh, during the past three or four years relative to the coasts because the coasts were the ones that had seen all these price increases. Won't happen. In the past five years, that hasn't happened. <laughs> yeah, it's too much yeah, fun it's too here. It's too many people want to be here. Speaking of inland, I, I wonder, too, about what's happening in inland California, and particularly the Inland Empire, right? Traditionally, that's where folks have gone to been commuted back in. But housing prices there, the, the subprime mess notwithstanding, right, have been going up some. And is there that differential has been... Oh, it's, eroded, uh, the right? differential is, is somewhat eroded there. The Inland Empire has been absorbing spillover activity from the more metro coastal areas now for decades. This time around, the homes that were built were actually quite attractive, the neighborhoods well-planned. It's quite a bit different this time around than it was back in 88, 89, 90, uh, when things really got grim in the so-called Inland Empire. If you go out there to Fontana, to Hemet, to Paris, to those places there, the uh, notwithstanding this, this perception that seems to be here in Los Angeles, these are actually very nice communities. The homes are nice, the uh, neighborhoods are nice, the schools are not so bad, and uh, they're close to job centers. Right. So it's, uh, you know, it's definitely growing. I think the Inland Empire the past five years has certainly been the, uh, the job-generating engine of California. But as that price differential shrinks and that becomes less of an outlet that way and they become more communities that are all sustained within, where do people go next if, they're, if they need to? Oh, there's, there's, there's plenty of room in the okay. Inland Empire there. The, the issue right now is that the Inland Empire, because of all that spillover activity that came out there, a disproportionate amount of the uh, buying and financing activity happened during 2004, 2005. So a large portion of the housing stock out there is is in distress. The uh, issue statewide, we have the Central Valley, we have the High Desert, we have the Inland Empire. Those areas there account for probably about 70 or 80 percent of the distress out there. If we go out and look at that distress, and I see it in Paris because I'm down there a lot, compared to, say, Los Angeles, Los Angeles doesn't have a problem <laughs> compared to what it is elsewhere, especially the Central Valley. I, I think there are two trajectories. Remember that for the past five, six years, a long time, people used to drive to qualify. That is, you kept driving until you could afford a mortgage. Uh, <laughs> right, right. You know, it, and this was in, a, in, a, in an environment of $2 a gallon. You, at $4 a gallon, it becomes a major problem, and unless the employers come, it's the Mountain and Muhammad story, unless the employers start coming out to the residential neighborhoods, people will stop commuting, and they are going to just pick up and go or find elsewhere. And uh, I think the expansion outwards, not only is it so costly in terms of infrastructure that we cannot afford any longer, but I think that is going to be changing dramatically. No, and I, I'd say, I'd sort of add to that, I think that sort of translates to, you know, the movements around transit-oriented development, smart growth, the kind of buzzwords that are in the development community, but really, you know, you want to have the funding sort of follow that. So, you know, the state's new initiatives and the recent proposition from last year on uh, for new housing, that all of those are really kind of geared around trying to really reinforce the funding resources that are available to developing housing in the urban communities. And I think that's ultimately where, you know, that's, you sort of get that reverse, ultimately it comes back. You've been listening to Sean Spear, Director of Major Projects for the Los Angeles Housing Department, John Caraval, a housing market analyst with DataQuick Information Systems, and Ehud Mushli, Vice President of Unidev, a workforce housing developer, and moderator Rick Wartsman. Now the Sokolo audience asks the questions. I'm Bailey Aldrich, and I know you guys specialize more with homes as, as opposed to renting, but I live in North Hollywood, and there's this interesting situation going on where all the apartment complexes, they're, it's like a couple years ago, they all looked into the future and said, this is a rising area, and there's going to be a whole lot of people here, and so we're going to build a lot of apartments, and it seems like now there's a lot of apartments that are having trouble filling their occupancy, but we still don't see prices going down. We see the, the incentives getting bigger and bigger and bigger, but as far as looking for you know a place that you're going to stay for a couple years and you're going to renew your lease, they're just not coming down. At what point is that going to change, or is it at all? 
Yeah, I think a lot of it is the the market kind of follows the money, and so where every where there was a lot of investment in home ownership, you know that the investment dollars are now going towards rental, and in some cases where in places like that where they may have developed a, developed it a couple years ago and therefore got a mortgage based upon the pricing back then, it's a lot easier for them to carry the project even perhaps with some vacancy, but still be able to carry the project based upon where the where the rent levels are right now. And they'll hold out on assuming that there'll be, you know, someone that'll come along and some say this, you know, there's a sucker born every day, but one that'll come along that will be willing to pay that sort of inflated rental price based upon their speculation in part. I think No, I think as actually probably you'll see some, I would probably predict that as the home ownership situation stabilizes that you'll then start to see people will be able to qualify for their mortgages and be able to start to see more movement in, in the home ownership market and there'll start to be more vacancy and then you know they'll have to realize that they have to lower their rents accordingly. My name is Todd Kerner. I'm curious, to what extent does Proposition 13 skew artificially consumer behavior in California and you think as a net it's a positive or a negative on the home market here? It's a great question. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I know that it harmed us tremendously when it comes to school finance, school funding, but in other respects, I think it was a fair way of handling it. So, good news, bad news. I don't know though. Ta- taxes is a zero-sum game. You know, I. What is it with this tax aversion we have in this country here? You know, you get what you pay for, you know? I mean, here I'm driving down from San Francisco yesterday on I-5, and it's like a slalom course. And then the schools, I mean, I ended up yanking my kids out of the school they were going to, which, and then sending them off to a, you know, pay them school, a private school. I just, you know, you get what you pay for, and Prop 13 is a typical example of that. What it's done, among other things, though, now, is it's locked a lot of people into the houses that they're in. There are an awful lot of old ladies sitting on homes that could sell for a million bucks, they might want to get out, but they're just not going to do it because if that house got turned over, boom, you know, the tax hit would be too much. So it's, uh, yeah, I, you know, I think it's a stupid law, but, you know, there are an awful lot of people that disagree with me. You've just heard a panel on home affordability in Los Angeles with Sean Spear, Director of Major Projects for the Los Angeles Housing Department, John Caraval, a housing market analyst with DataQuick Information Systems, and Ehud Mushli, Vice President of Unidev, a workforce housing developer, and moderator Rick Wartzman. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Socalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our free live events around town. For more information, go to SocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. The executive producer for Socalo Radio is Peter Stenshol. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in.